Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, Scary Stories number 14, you'll hear Ron Hart. This should have been just another boring morning in another boring Elk Grove Village home. Instead, within minutes, Mary was dead. That and more. But first, folks, I want to remind you what an amazing gift it is to purchase storytelling training for someone you love. You can just email me at kevin at show.com if you're interested in that, and I can explain a wide variety of options that myself and others at thestorystudio.org have available. Half-hour-long sessions, hour-long sessions. You can buy one, you can buy multiple sessions to be custom-tailored. You know, storytelling workshopping with someone can be an extremely fulfilling creative outlet. It can be a hugely beneficial professional boost, you know, working on storytelling for presentations and whatnot. Great for writing for the page, the stage, the screen. Or you might just be interested in the benefits of personal journaling. Or networking. You know, storytelling is actually a very important part of your social life. Storytelling training can be hugely useful in all of those ways. So consider what a beautiful gift that could be to give to someone you care about. And email me to learn more at kevin at risk-show.com. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Bernard Herman behind me now. Uh, music from the film Psycho, of course. And this, of course, is Scary Stories 14, hair-raising. Our 14th Halloween Tide episode where we celebrate <laughs> the spookier sides of life. All 14 of these scary story episodes are a blast to listen to this time of year. And remember, you can pitch us your own scary stories any time of the year. You can pitch us today, and you might be on next year's. Or maybe you know someone with a scary story. Everything they need to know is at risk-show.com slash submissions. Now, I do recommend you use earbuds or headphones on this one. They're all radio-style stories, and the nuances of the sound design are not to be missed. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Gretchen Nodehaus, an example of a story that was pitched to us this time last year. So it's proof you can pitch us a scary story 12 months or so in advance. Uh, Gretchen is on TikTok at Redstone Pottery. And then we also asked you all, Risk listeners, to send in just tiny little scary memories. We love to hear your voices on the show. So we are going to hear the voices of Callie Sessions and Ann Askin. But before all that, a story that was shared with us by Ron Hart. Such a wonderful storyteller. This is so well told. Ron can be found on Twitter at Scatter. And here he is now with a story we call A Halloween Carol.
I grew up in Elk Grove Village, which is this cookie cutter suburb outside Chicago where nothing happens. Even that name is aspirational. It's not like this is the land where elk roamed. No, it's just like someone was like, I don't know, maybe it would be cool if elk were here. Instead, they were just warehouses and track homes. Everything looked the same. Every day felt the same. And I was constantly itching for something to be different. I mean, this is the 80s and we didn't even have our own mall. We had to drive to Schaumburg for that. Do you know how demoralizing it is to not be as cool as a place called Schaumburg? The sign on the way into town said, Welcome to Elk Grove Village, the exceptional community. But in my opinion, the only thing we were exceptional at was being boring. And I grew up very, very bored. Like when I was eight, I rode my bike to the library and spent an entire day reading the bound volumes of Peanuts. This is my summer break, and this is the best thing I could decide to do with my day. I mean, it's a beautiful town. I got big, you know, leafy green lawns, neat little homes, safe streets. But to me, the whole place just felt like oatmeal, a big steaming bowl of boring. But one night of the year was different. Halloween was a breath of fresh air in the land of dull. More than any other holiday, the day truly felt enchanted to me. The whole town magically transformed. Everything was different. There were jack-lanterns on the porches, the cardboard skeletons on the doors. And when the autumn sky went dark, the sidewalks were crawling with Papa Smurfs and strawberry shortcakes. Plus, if I knocked on the right door, I could walk away with a full-size Twix. Now, candy was the barometer for how great of a Halloween I was having. The bigger the pile, the better the Halloween. It's all about the volume. But in the pantheon of Halloween treats, there is clearly one candy to rule them all. I'm talking about Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. Milk chocolate giving delicious peanut butter a hug. Truly two great tastes that taste great together. On Halloween night, I would pick up my neighbor, Jason. We'd hit every house in our neighborhood. Once we finished that, we'd make our parents drive us over to the houses on the lake. Those houses were bigger and fancier, and they had the bougie candy. Like in my neighborhood, we tended to get those single cup packs, but the houses by the lakes, that was the land of the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup twin packs. But my love for Halloween wasn't entirely candy-based. Halloween was my favorite holiday because it brought excitement to my town. I got to be Speed Racer Superman. When I was seven, Star Wars came out, and I wanted to be a Jawa. Not Han Solo, not Darth Vader, a Jawa. One of those little screechy guys at the beginning that steals R2-D2. I wore a brown hooded robe, and then the next day, I wore that same robe to be St. Francis of Assisi at my Catholic school's All Saints Day Festival. Maybe you're thinking, oh, All Saints Day, that sounds fun. No, it wasn't. It was just us dressed as saints in boring church or boring school. Halloween was the only day of the year that I truly loved. And when I was 12, I was determined to have the best Halloween ever. I needed it to be the best because I had been visited by the ghost of Halloween past and the ghost of Halloween future. Now, the ghost of Halloween past was the year before. I was 11 and I got invited to a trick-or-treat party. This was a huge deal for me. Suddenly, I wasn't going to be roaming the streets with my parents. I'd be trick-or-treating with the cool kids. We left Scott Carlson's house after sundown. I felt so grown up. In my mind, I can still see us like strolling down the sidewalk in slow motion while that song from Kill Bill plays, even though it was recorded like 20 years later. I can feel us walking that way. And we were the kings of Halloween. A dozen big kids just feeling ourselves, striding from house to house. A vampire, a Pac-Man, a couple of mummies. I was a hobo because in 1981, it was a simpler time in America where it wasn't messed up to dress like a homeless person. Now, with no chaperones to slow us down, we were going to rake in so much candy. I imagined covering the entire top of my bed with Reese's and just making peanut butter cup angels. This was going to be an epic night. When we got to the third house, the mom inside opened her screen door to hand us candy. The second she did that, this huge German shepherd sprung onto the porch. Because this is 1981. It was a simpler time in America where you didn't have to leash up your attack dog on the night you knew kids be knocking on the door. This dog was massive. He was showing his teeth, barking ferociously. He was freaked out to have all these weirdos at his house, and he was out for blood. And there we were, a dozen kids packed onto this tiny porch. We were sitting ducks, 
trapped by our lust for candy. Except, this is the moment I learned that all of my friends were just a little bit faster than me. Somehow, 11 other kids vanished, and it's just me and Rin Tin Tin. He's the trick, and I'm the treat. He chomps down on my arm, and I fall to the ground, crying. I, I cried so hard that the mascara hobo beard ran down my face. Maybe if I'd known I was going to be mauled by a dog and left for dead by my friends, I would have used the waterproof mascara. Now, once they got the dog off me, Scott's mom called my dad, and he picked me up and took me to the emergency room. This is the first, but not the last time, I left the party early to go to the emergency room. Luckily, the dog had all his shots, so they cleaned me up and they sent me home. That's how boring Elk Grove is. On Halloween night, I was in and out of the emergency room in an hour. Nothing happens there. So then dad took me back to the party, but by then they'd finished trick-or-treating and the kids were at Scott's house counting how much candy they had. This is when the really humiliating part started. The moms felt so bad for me, they made all of their kids give me some of their candy. The night literally turned into a pity party for me. As their judgmental moms watched, my friends filed past one by one, offering me goodies from their plastic pumpkins. But it's not like they were going to give me a Kit Kat or a Snicker. No, I got Bitta Honey, Necco Wafers, Garbage Candy. I started the night with all these hopes, but then I walked away with this taste in my mouth that was worse than double bubble gum. Halloween had screwed 11-year-old me, so 12-year-old me thought it owed me candy. So when it turned to autumn that next year, I told my 13-year-old sister how excited I was for trick-or-treating, and I asked her what she was going to go as. This is when the ghost of Halloween future arrived. She gave me the biggest 8th grade eye roll and said, Teenagers do not trick-or-treat. Uh, teenagers don't trick-or-treat? Teenagers don't trick-or-treat. Anger and confusion washed over me. I felt like I was falling, like I was Hans Gruber plunging from Nakatoma Plaza, even though it was six years before Die Hard was made. I was going to be a teenager next year. That meant that my Halloween future had no trick-or-treating. This was my last Halloween, my last respite from the boredom of my hometown. After this night, there'd be nothing left but drudgery until I, I don't know, died or graduated high school, both of which seemed so far away. So I made a vow. I was not going to let All Hallows Eve go quiet into that good night. I was going to get all of the candy. There wasn't a Skittle within a mile of my house that would be safe. I was going to make Halloween 1982 the best Halloween ever. That is when the ghost of Halloween present showed up. A few blocks from my house, there lived a girl named Mary. She was the exact same age as me. If my parents hadn't wasted their money sending me to Catholic school, she and I would have been in the same class. Now, one September morning, she woke up feeling sick, and her father thought she had a fever, went to the medicine cabinet, and gave her something. This should have been just another boring morning in another boring Elk Grove Village home. Instead, within minutes, Mary was dead. She was the first victim of the Tylenol murders. A maniac bought bottles of Tylenol, meticulously took the capsules apart, replaced the medicine with cyanide, and put the bottles back in stores to be bought. Unsuspecting people then brought that poison into their homes. It was a crime that was so shocking and bizarre that people didn't even understand what was happening for days. Those bottles were found all over the Chicagoland suburbs. In the town next Elk Grove, a young father died, and then his family gathered in the home to plan his funeral. While at the house, his brother and sister-in-law took Tylenol from the same bottle, and they died in front of their family. It was only after this that law enforcement finally understood what was happening and was able to start warning the public. In the span of a few days, seven people were murdered. It was a panic, and suddenly my boring hometown was national news. The company that makes Tylenol removed their products and Congress passed laws to make drugs safer. If you've ever struggled to punch through that foil seal on a bottle of uh, cough relief or headache medicine, this is the reason that's there. But this was 1982, a simpler time in America where mass murders inspired bipartisan action to make sure they never happened again. 
Now, you're probably waiting for me to tell you about the person who committed this terrible act, but that's the really horrifying part. It's been 40 years, but the Tylenol murders were never solved. And back in 1982, while the country was busy securing over-the-counter medicine, my hometown was feeling it much, much more personally. The killer had walked into Mary's grocery store, my grocery store, past the aisle where I would beg mom to buy me Count Chocula, to another aisle where my family got Band-Aids and aspirin, and he left a bottle on the shelf that they say had enough poison to kill 1,000 people. Now, the specter of Mary's death just hung over every center of the town. We would whisper about her family like they were ghosts. I didn't know her, but I knew I could have been her, and we all felt that. And now we knew there was a murderer nearby. We looked around and wondered, who did this? Would they do something like this again? And this is right as the calendar is turning to October. So when people started putting pumpkins on their porches, the town thought, wait, are we really going to send our kids out to take candy from strangers? 12-year-old me was terrified because they were talking about canceling trick-or-treating. I understood people had died, but I was a 12-year-old boy who wanted candy. Now, part of me thinks that Maybe I was clinging to the magic of my childhood and that could shield me from the painful truth that my hometown was going through a nightmare. But it was like 20 years before I'd be in therapy. So I think pretty much it was about the candy for me. Now, many towns in the area canceled trick-or-treating. Elk Grove Village did not because we're an exceptional community. I still, though, had to convince my mom to let me go trick-or-treating. She agreed with one caveat. I had to promise to let her inspect all of my treats because apparently my mother has the power to smell cyanide and candy. Now, most of my classmates and friends lost this fight to their parents. All those old wife tales about, you know, people putting razor blades and apples on, on Halloween, they just felt so relevant. The ghosts of Halloween past, present, and future were gone, replaced with something just more real and terrifying. I looked for trick-or-treating partners. I asked, you know, my neighbor Jason or the guys that saw me get mauled by a dog the year before. No one wanted to go out. It just felt too weird to them. But I didn't want to give up on trick-or-treating. I felt like I was reading a chapter of a book that I wasn't finished with and somebody was turning the page for me. I loved it too much. I didn't want it to go away. Plus, I needed enough candy to last me the rest of my life in this boring town. So I went out to collect my own bounty. I was dressed as a football player, which was just a Chicago Bears jersey and jeans. It was barely a costume. I mean, I was 12 by this point. It's something I would wear a lot of Sundays, but I didn't want to get slowed down by like a cape and a mask. I had candy to get to. Once I was out on the streets though, Halloween was eerie. There were kids in costumes passing cops and uniforms. And I just, I just remember all this tension in the air. For all anyone knew, the poisoner was at home handing out treats with God only knows what in them. I also remember there were a lot fewer people on the sidewalk, which was going to make it easier to get the house to house, and I'm a candy degenerate, so that's a good thing. Now, when I got to the first house, the mom inside gave me this big smile, which dropped when she saw how little effort I put into my costume. But I said the magic words, trick or treat, and she dropped something in my plastic pumpkin. She had given me a 9-volt battery. I was like, like, what? Why not just give me the middle finger, lady? But I shook it off. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. She's some crazy old nutter. I put my head down, and I went looking for real treats. I knocked on door after door, but nobody was giving out candy. They gave out nickels, toy cars, erasers. I was panicking. Where were the peanut butter cups? And I realized I had to get to the houses by the lake. Surely rich people could save me. So I got on my bike. I had this little headlight with a generator on the back tire that would make it light up when I went. And rolling through those streets, it just didn't, it didn't feel like Halloween. Then I realized what was missing. It was the the cardboard skeletons, the plastic tombstones on the yard, all those styrofoam ghosts. Any sign of death just felt like bad taste that year. So people kept those decorations in their attic. But somehow those not being there made the whole night just feel more barren and cold and foreboding. When I got to the side of the town with the lake, I saw this line of kids at one particularly nice house. So I threw my bike on the lawn and raced up, held out my pumpkin, 
Trick or treat! Surely now my peanut butter cup would come. I waited, but I didn't hear anything hit the pumpkin. And then I looked down and realized they had given me a McDonald's gift certificate. Like, what? I'm supposed to be excited to get 50 cents off my next order of chicken McNuggets? It was worse than bit of honey, and I didn't know that was possible. My mother didn't believe me when I got home and told her there was nothing for her to smell. But I threw my hobo coat in the laundry and sulked off to my room. And my sister was right. When I was 13, the idea of going out trick-or-treating felt so uncool. That was it. It was over. My last Halloween was a bust. Except that wasn't my last Halloween. I would go trick-or-treating again. Years later, as a dad. It was 2006. My daughter is seven months old, dressed as a pumpkin. And she doesn't know why. And she doesn't know why we're knocking on the neighbor's door. She doesn't even know that they're giving her candy because she's too young to eat it. But she smiles for hours and is so overstimulated by the end of the night that she actually sleeps the whole night through. And by 2011, I had two daughters. They were toddlers dressed as a monkey and a ladybug. They were so freaking cute that people were throwing candy at them. We had to carry their pumpkins because they got too heavy with candy for them to carry by themselves. Being a parent on Halloween is this just weird contradiction. We tell our children to binge eat candy, play on the streets after dark, talk to strangers, basically All the commandments of the other 364 days of the year go out the window. But it's this weird nothing-is-as-it-should-be feeling that makes it so exciting for the kids. And seeing their little faces light up, this just became a thrill that I loved as a parent. And then Halloween was my favorite holiday again. But once I trick-or-treated as a parent, I realized it's really not for 12-year-olds. This is for little kids, tiny, two, four, maybe six. That's the peak age for Halloween. I'd see 12-year-olds, 11-year-olds, and I'd always think, oh, dude, just give it up. You're just out collecting candy. But those little kids, that's different. This is a full-on transformative experience for them. They dress up like their biggest dreams and knock on doors to find treasures inside. When I fell in love, when I thought the night was enchanted and everything was magical about my hometown, This is the age that gave me that feeling. And as a parent, you have to rely on strangers to give your kids this experience. So there's always this little tinge in the back of my head. Like when I look down at their pumpkins, I think, is this safe? Because I didn't inherit my mother's ability to smell poison. But with my parents' eyes, I think 1982 was kind of a miracle. People were scared. Halloween almost didn't happen. But my neighbors decided an asshole murderer shouldn't ruin a night of wonder for kids. Even though I'm a cynical jerk about my hometown, they actually are an exceptional community. And picturing myself as a parent on that night, I know it must have been terrifying to know there's a murderer nearby and then watch your kid knock on a door not knowing if the person inside was a monster. So people handed out safe treats. That way those parents wouldn't have to be scared. In our darkest hour, when we needed it the most, my hometown did the thing it does best. It made things boring. And it saved Halloween. given me a nine volt battery why not just give me the middle finger lady trick or treat trick or treat give me something sweet to eat they gave out nickels toy cars erasers i got a rock they had given me a mcdonald's gift certificate it was worse than bit of honey and i didn't know that was possible i got a rock Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. 
you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. We're back. I dig you, baby. In the dark of night, I dig you, baby, when the sun shines bright. I dig you, baby, from dusk till dawn. Now there's a hole in my front lawn. I dig you, baby, with one desire, and that's to make you my vampire. I dig you, baby. And that's the truth. I brought you some wolf bane and a baby root. I dig you, baby. So please be mine. Say you'll be Mrs. Frankenstein. We'll marry, baby, and find a flat. A gloomy tomb with a private bath. I dig your brother. Who's a Harvard man? Let's visit him whenever we can. We'll fly to the campus. It isn't very far. He isn't in the classroom. They keep him in a jar. I dig you, baby. So don't be cruel. We'll rock and roll when the moon is full. But I know. I can't make you swoon. You dig the creature from the black lagoon. So goodbye, baby. Here's where we part. It's like driving a stake right through my heart. Did you say steak? I'll have my medium rare. No, no, it's not that kind of steak. Oh, why do I always get the hungry one? My scariest moment of the past year was when I was sitting home alone. No sound was going on. It was dark in my apartment, and all of a sudden, my Alexa speaker said, Okay, okay. I'll play a song I'll called Ghost. Ghost. And sure enough, the fucking scariest song called Ghost started playing. Recently, my boyfriend had a nightmare about me where he said when we were driving down the road, he was driving, I was in the passenger seat, and I had our cat in my lap. And 
he looked at the road and looked back at me and looked back at the road. And when he looked back at me again, just as quickly as he shifted his eyes back to me, suddenly I was completely up in flames. Me and the cat were both on fire. I'm screaming and crying this horrible, like guttural scream cry. My face is all contorted. And at the same time this is all happening, I'm just stabbing the cat over and over again in my lap. It's the winter of 2007. I'm 22 years old. I've just moved home to my parents' farmhouse in rural Missouri. It's a big farmhouse. It's on five acres in the middle of nowhere, and it's super old. It was built around the turn of the century, and it's a big two-story, five-bedroom farmhouse. It's built on a stone foundation, so over the years, the rooms and the house have all shifted a little bit, so everything's a little off. All the rooms are at odd angles with a little bit of a slant. And this house has always been just kind of creepy. My brother and sister growing up, we had lots of strange experiences there. There was a time our parents left us home alone for a few hours, and from the downstairs, we started to hear all these noises upstairs of furniture being scooched across the floor. It sounded like the whole room must be being reorganized up there, like someone was pulling a dresser across the floor. And we're so scared, and we finally get the courage to run upstairs and open the door, but nobody's there. Nothing's been moved, everything is normal. And when we went back downstairs, the noises started again. And we just have lots of weird, unexplainable events like that from our past. Weird times with Ouija boards. It's just been a very creepy place. And even as an adult, I still don't like to be left alone there. And especially left alone there at night. On this particular night, I leave my mom watching TV on the sofa. And I climb the shag-covered rickety stairs up to my bedroom and I look out my window and the winter wind is blowing through the elm trees and making them creak. I can see the shadows of the trees in the hills surrounding us in our valley. And I get into bed, I pull up my blankets around me to fight the cold and I lay back on my pillow and I fall asleep. And suddenly I jolt awake in the middle of the night. And I don't know why I don't think that there was a sound. I don't have to pee, but I'm awake and I'm very awake. And then my ears start fluttering. They start to pop in and out as if they're just popping back and forth. And it goes on for about 30 seconds. I've never felt anything like this. It's very strange. And I open my eyes and I'm suddenly just aware of this evil presence in the room. That's the only way to describe it. And my stomach is just tied up in knots. And I want to get away. I try to move, but it's like the blankets are pinning me to the bed. They weigh 10,000 pounds and everything I'm trying, I can't, I can't get the blankets off of my body. And I can feel this presence. It's just right on top of me now. And I'm starting to panic. I'm sweating. I don't know what to do. Nothing I'm doing is working. So I close my eyes tight and I'm not religious, but I'm searching for anything to help me in this moment. So I'm just like, please, God, something help me. I oh my God, what is happening? And I try to think of something else. I, I close my eyes and I say, I'm, I'm surrounded by white light. I'm surrounded by golden light. I'm protected. I'm, I'm okay. And I wake up and I open my eyes and I'm back in my bed and everything seems okay. Oh my God. Thank God. I think <sighs> that was just a bad dream. <sighs> I look around my room for reassurance. It's my room, there's my record player, there's my door, everything seems normal. And even though my heart is still racing from the dream, I'm still tired. So I decide to lay back down in my bed, pull my blankets up 
and try and go back to sleep. And I'm lying there and all of a sudden I can hear my ears starting to flutter, that same popping in and out, just like they were before in the dream. And I open my eyes and I'm aware of that same presence back in the room, that same evil, that same dark feeling. And again, I'm trying to move and the, the blankets are back, suctioned around my body, weighing a million pounds. Nothing I do will get me out of this bed. I'm trying to scream at the top of my lungs and I can't scream. Nothing is working. And I remember the time before and I think, okay, that seemed to work. I close my eyes. I think, uh, God, uh, yeah, I'm surrounded by golden light. I'm, I'm okay. I'm safe. And again, I wake up and I'm back in my bed and everything's quiet and normal. And I look around my room. Oh, thank God. Okay, that was weird, but I guess that was just a dream within a dream. But I'm too freaked out to try and go to sleep in my room again. I decided that I'm just gonna go down and I'll talk to my mom about the dream, maybe feel a little better and I'll be able to get back to sleep. So I creak back down the stairs and I go into my mom sleeping on the couch and I sit down on the edge of the sofa and she wakes up and looks at me and I'm like, oh my God, mom, sorry to wake you up, but I just, I just had the craziest dreams and they were so vivid and so real and so terrifying. And I just, I wanna sleep down here with you. It was awful. And my mom seems a little off and she's not really, responding to what I'm saying or seeming alarmed or comforting and her eyes look really strange and she sits up and I'm like mom are you listening to me are you are you okay and she starts to lean in towards my face and I sort of sense that like there's this hollowness behind her eyes and she's just getting closer and closer and closer and closer and she's leaning in so close to me now that I think that she's gonna kiss me on the mouth, which is not how we do things in the Midwest. And it's really freaking me out. And I go to push her away from me. And as I do, I start to notice that she is hollow, that her mouth is hollow. And as I reach her to push her away, her skin starts to crack and turn into gray paper, like an old crumbling mummy. As my fingers start to meet her, she crumbles beneath my hands like ash and just disintegrates right in front of me. And I just wake up in my bed and I am screaming at the top of my lungs and I'm covered in a cold sweat and I have tears streaming down my face. And I'm back in my room. Just me, alone in my familiar bedroom. Heart still pounding. And I think, thank God I'm awake, finally. Or am I? Sweetie. What's wrong? I heard you crying. It's the middle of the night. Are you having trouble sleeping? Oh no. You had a nightmare. Oh, honey. It's okay. Don't worry. It wasn't real. It was just a dream.
This is Larry's Rebels behind me now. A band that formed in 1964 and somehow arrived at the fateful decision to name themselves Larry's <laughs> Rebels. <laughs> Before that, we heard a rather unsettling interstitial called Hush Little Baby by Taj Easton, preceded by the story Mommy Dearest by Gretchen Nothouse, and there's a lot more to come. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Brian Heath, who you can find at Heath's Little Hand on Instagram. But before that, we're going to hear another one of those Risk Listener submissions. This one's by Ryan Estrada, who also writes comics, and you can find the comics version of this story at ryanestrada.com. Here he is now with a story we call The Permanent Halloween. I loved Halloween as a kid and I wanted it to last forever. But when I turned 12, all of a sudden my family's saying I'm too old to go trick-or-treating. And I'm like, oh no, I'm gonna show you all. I'm gonna go myself and make my own costume. And I decided to make it scary. I was gonna be an accident victim. Tire tracks on my pants, fake cast, ketchup blood, everything, but something was missing. Fire. So I got my dead grandfather's old flannel out of the dry basement, a lighter and a cup of water. I figured I'd just singe the sleeve and douse it out, but safety was of the utmost importance. I didn't want to catch a cold before trick-or-treating, so I wore the shirt. Three minutes of running around the yard engulfed in flames later, my mother was ripping the shirt off of me and rushing to the emergency room. I sat, sizzling like fried chicken, my hair all melted together. The doctor's talking about third-degree burns and skin grafts, and I just wanted to get the hell out of there and go trick-or-treating got home, put on my costume, walked 15 feet, and fainted on my neighbor's porch. I never went trick-or-treating again. But thanks to the burn scar that's still there, the Halloween costume really did last forever. I don't scare very easily. I'm usually the first person to charge into a scary situation. Now, I wasn't always this way. This was sort of a muscle that I've built up over the years. And I did the most work on that muscle during spring break of sophomore year when I visited my friend John, who had just moved to St. Louis the year before. And he had already established himself with the punk rock crowd down there. And not only that, he had a girlfriend that wanted to set me up with her cute friend. So I had a date and a group of new friends, which was very exciting. 
In addition to Jonathan was his brother, Edward, and Edward's friend, Jack. These two were about three years older than us, and they were stoners, they were metalheads, and they were self-described Satanists, but none of us took them seriously in that regard. The group of us pretty much spent the entire week in John's basement. John's basement got no natural light whatsoever. If you turned off all the lights, it was pitch black in this basement. There was very little art on the walls. There was a pool table. There was a couch and an entertainment center, a bathroom and a guest room. And we spent a lot of time in the guest room playing with a Ouija board. Now, a Ouija board is also known as a spirit board or a talking board. It is a flat board with all the letters in the alphabet, numbers 0 through 9, yes and no, and a moon and a sun. And the players put their hands on what's called a planchette. Planchette is a piece of plastic with a clear window in the top of it. And then the players ask questions of the spirit world, and if everyone's lightly touching the planchette, sometimes it moves and it gives you answers. Now, it started off super duper fun. We were all trying to find out who had a crush on us. We all wanted to see if we were going to make it in the NFL. We all just wanted to to have fun with it. Now, Edward was really trying to push the harder questions. He wanted to know more about the underworld, if you will. And it was super fun until it got real. And it got real for me when on the second day we were sitting around asking questions and I was leaned up against the back of the futon. I wasn't touching the board and it was my turn to ask a question and I decided to test it out. Well, what is my mother's maiden name? Knowing that the people holding the board have known me for two days and would not know it. I figured this would be my out. This would be where I'm like, this is bullshit. Cool. But then it slowly spelled out D-R-E-W. And they looked at me and I said, is that your mother's maiden name? And I said, yes, it is. It's a feeling of a thrill and a fear. And it's like a vicious cocktail of both. This was real. This was actually happening. As scary as it was, as exciting as it was, as unknown as it was, this was actually happening. As the day wore on and we all kept checking and questioning and asking and it nailed the answer every time and then finally we were like, who are you? And it spelled out, my name is Dan. Dan was different. Dan was able to do things that we didn't even know could be done. Later on, we started asking questions without even saying them. One of our group, Megan, it was her turn to speak. She said nothing, and the planchette moved, and it spelled out K-A-T-E. And she looked at us, and she said, That's correct. My sister's name is Kate. Dan just read my mind. And this was happening to all of us. Edward and Jack, they just took it to a new level. They kept asking more and more questions. Edward even established with Dan that we were now a family, which wasn't a comfortable thing to hear for me. But at any given time, we could ask Dan, who is the family? And he would zip around the board and grab the first letter of everyone's name. Boom, 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 boom. That's the family. If he was getting bored with us and we had our hands on the on the planchette, he would do figure eights to keep himself busy. And he wouldn't just do a figure eight, he'd rip it. Just shoot, 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 shooting across the board. One of the things Dan kept saying that we decided to question was he would always say, I'm with you, I'm here. And we said, okay, well, in what sense are you here? And he said, I'm in the room. And we would say, okay, where in the room? And then he spelled out a spot on the floor by the door. And I went over there and I put my hand out and I was like, I don't feel anything. And Megan came over and put her hand about a foot lower than mine 
grabbed my hand and pulled it down, and I felt a 20-degree drop in temperature. Dan was sitting on the floor. We could shape his body in cold. Now, Dan, after establishing himself as being someone in the room, Dan started making demands. He insisted on being in charge of who was allowed in the room. John would come back from work and Dan would say, nope, John can't be in here. And we would say, well, too bad, Dan. He can be in here, it's his house. And that is when Dan took a tone that changed the game for all of us. One of the first things he started to do was tell us when we were going to die. And I remember saying, nobody asked you that. And he would just keep spelling it out. He would move on to the next person. He started insisting who in the room should die. This was not fun anymore. This was officially terrifying. By the end of that day, John and I were pretty much over it, and we had scheduled dates with the girls. So we decided to hang out in the living room and watch Witchboard with the girls. Now, the Dan room was still happening. The other rest of the group was still in Dan room. So there we were on the couch, cuddling to Witchboard, and all of a sudden, the Dan room explodes. Megan comes running out, trembling like a leaf grabbing both me and Jonathan, saying, Dan has crossed the line. We have to do something about Dan. And I could tell from her voice and the look in her face that she was mortified. Okay, okay, okay. What happened? What happened? What What did he do? Well, we were playing the game where we asked Dan where he was, right? Okay, okay. And we asked Dan if he was in the corner where he normally is, and he said no. And then we asked Dan if he was in the closet, and he said no. And on the futon, and he said no. And then we asked if he was next to anyone, he said yes. And we asked who, and he said Megan. And we said, are you to the left or right? And he said, neither lap. He was on her lap. We got to do something about Dan. And so we decided as a group, it was time to break up with Dan. And we went into the room and we explained to Dan that we were now scared. We were now uncomfortable and it was time for this to end. And then very slowly he spelled out, why are you soft? And for some reason, that sentence for all of us was it. We were not going to be asking Dan any more questions. It was the scariest thing anything's ever said to me, living or dead. And it was time to get rid of the board. But do you put it back next to Monopoly in the game closet? No. We had to burn it, right? So we marched out of John's place one by one, down the end of the driveway, formed a half circle, pointed towards the house. John placed the board in the street, douses it with lighter fluid, and you can feel the sting of that smell creeping into your nose, and then he lights it, and the heat comes up, and for a couple of seconds, a nice little roar of flame, and Jack decided to do what looked like a Tai Chi sort of dance in front of the flame, but we weren't really paying attention to him. We were turning back into teenagers. We were asking questions like, well, now... Do you think which board is going to be as cool an ending as this one? You know, <laughs> and and do you guys think Dan will leave us alone now? Because, you know, we burned the conduit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he can't talk to us anymore. So what can he do? Well, now that we're done with Dan, like, what are we going to do for our last night? Do you guys want to watch which board? Do we want to, you know, go play video games? It was this wonderful sense of relief. John came up and we put our arms around each other, patted each other on the chest and just said, well, that's over now, right? (laughs) And now we get to go back to being 16-year-old boys who want to kiss girls. And then its flames started to go out, as they do. But then it started to circle. And if you could grab a flame and draw a 12-inch diameter circle with it, And it's about two inches high, but it's a perfect circle. And then that tube shot up five feet high. And it made a sound, which was 
both a sound and a force, and it went, and my stomach dropped. It felt like a shockwave. My legs buckled. Other people's legs buckled. We all sat there and stared at this thing. And then just as fast as it was up, it was out. And it went down, and it sparkled out like a, like a gas grill that you turn off really fast, where it just goes pop, 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 pop. Jack drops to his knees. John runs over and asks him what the fuck he was doing. And he tells us that he was asking for a gift from the gods. Okay. Um, what the fuck does that mean? Did we all just see a tube of flame that was about five feet tall? Did we all see that? We did. Did everyone feel that feeling in your gut? The dropout? Yes, we all did. Did everyone hear the noise? The super wind? Did everyone hear that? We all did. What does all that mean? What was that feeling going through us? Is it possible that we have been possessed? Well, sure. Well, what do we do? How do you know? What can you do? And the only thing that came to mind was we need to go see a priest and we need to do it tomorrow. But tomorrow was a long way away. We were so scared we spent the night together. And we didn't just spend the night together. We had someone up the entire time looking over the people who were sleeping. And if you had to go to the bathroom, you brought a buddy in there with you. Well, we made it through the night. And the next day we went to John's priest. It was a beautiful, chilly morning. And we walked up to the door and we knocked and nothing happened. And we started to ask ourselves He's going to kick us out of here, right? Like, he could tell us to fuck off. Or he doesn't even answer the door. Or he doesn't believe us. And he just laughs at us and closes the door. I mean, look, what are we doing here? Like, maybe we bail? Do we bail? But it was too late because the door had opened. And there, in his robe, was the priest. Younger than I had expected, and he was quite handsome. And he just had a smile on his face as soon as he saw us. It was very, very welcoming to see him. There's a scene from a movie called The Goonies, where at the end, they're all trying to tell the police their story at the same time. And he can't keep track because they're all yelling at him at the same time. The pirates, the, the, the gold, the Fratellis, that was us. The spirits, Dan, the board. John finally takes over because he recognizes John. John tells him the story. He looked at us with a bit of shock, but he listened to John and he turned around and he left for a minute. He left us outside and he came outside with the aspergillum and he believed us 100%. The aspergillum is a relic that is used for dousing people with holy water. He told us we had messed around with something. And he was confident of that. And he said a prayer, and he sprinkled us with holy water. And the first shake he did, I had a jolt as a drop of it went square into my eye. And this tear of holy water ran down my face. And for some reason, that sensation made me feel like I was safe. Like, this is in my blood. This is protecting me. And I no longer feel the fear that I have felt for the last 12 hours. The next day, I flew home. And I had confirmation that something else exists. I was still recovering from the terror, but it was also one of the best bonding experiences of my life. And now I look around... I look at that story and I feel a sense of protection. I felt it then. I feel it now. And I don't know if it's a guardian angel or if there's anything actually protecting me. Maybe it's just that if you want to scare me, you're going to have to top a portal to fucking hell. (laughs) 
Hello and welcome to another What's Inside. Today we're looking at a Ouija board. This is from 1972. And it's your standard talking board set. And on the bottom of the box are the directions. It's a real straightforward game. It's literally like four paragraphs here. Let's see what we've got in here. So that's what's inside. You heard what I had to say about it. See you on the next one. <laughs> the other night, about 12 o'clock, I thought I'd go downstairs just to check the lock. When I heard something in the house, I don't mean a mouse. I swear they were spooks, spooks, spooks. I know they were spooks, 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 spooks. I couldn't move, just stood and stare. I never was so scared. The first spook spoke and I heard him speak. He said, what's say? Go make the back door squeak. We'll tease the cat and hound the pup. Raise our spirits up Oh, Lord of them spooks Spooks, spooks Those scary old spooks Spooks, spooks, spooks You don't have to take my word But I heard what I heard Well, that is almost all of this week's episode, folks This is Louis Armstrong behind me now And we just heard an interstitial called Fuck Me Ouija by Taj Easton, inspired by Brian Heath's story. Before that, you can find Brian at Heath's Little Hand on Instagram. Dosh did the editing on that story as well as a bunch of others on this episode. And before Brian, we heard a song by Plymouth Rock, all about that famous children's record, that Halloween record called Sounds to Make You Shiver. And the unexpected ways that that record affected his sexual development as a child. Oh, Plymouth Rock, we hardly knew ye. Folks, you can always let us know what you think of the stories over at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook or our subreddit, r slash Risk Podcast. Great places to share with other fans and with us and don't forget again pitch us your scary stories any time of year and get your friends to pitch us theirs info is at risk-show.com slash submissions and any questions you might have just email me at kevin at risk-show.com and don't forget risk is live in november in three different cities reno nevada is on november 11th Phenomenal stories coming together for that one. The venue is called The Theater, and the Reno show on November 11th is at 8 p.m. On November 15th, I'll be co-hosting the show out there with David Crabb. It will be only the second time in these 13 years of doing the show that I'll have been there for a Risk LA show. So that's a big deal. That's at the Hotel Cafe at 7 p.m. on November 15th in LA. And then finally on November 17th, we're back at Caveat in New York City, 9.30 p.m. Eastern for that one. And tickets for all three of these shows or the live streams of them are at risk-show.com slash tour. We'll be right back. We're back. Folks, don't forget to start pitching us your winter holiday stories now, too. Christmas, Hanukkah, Solstice, Kwanzaa, New Year's. Any stories about the fun and maybe not so fun, maybe the chaotic memories you have of the winter holiday season, you can pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. And don't miss the many, many hours of bonus content we have by becoming a member over at patreon.com slash risk. Or if you want to help keep the show running by making a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Folks, 
Today's the day. Take a risk. He's talking about spooks, 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 real genuine spooks, 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 spooks. No, you stop putting up your dukes. You just can't fight with them spooks. I'm cutting out of here, man. I don't dig this job. No. Wait for us, wait for us, wait for us, wait for us. Did you have some scary fun on Halloween? Clifford and I hope you have lots of fun every day. And we hope you'll remember. Every day you can stop and say, Golly, a jolly holiday. Bye for now. Uh, uh.